Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. There, you need to experience and to learn uh, from those experiences and, and fail. And as long as you're learning from those failures, uh, then it'll benefit you more than the successes. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I hope you're hanging in there during this very, very incredibly challenging time. Truly an unbelievable year, but I know we're all going to get through it. And hopefully through these episodes, while you're preparing yourself to get back to work, Hopefully, a lot of the things that are talked about on these podcasts and the information that you get from them will be invaluable to you in the future. That's my hope, and I am grateful for all of you, truly, for everything you've done for this podcast and how you support it and how you subscribe and pass it on to your friends. I am so, so grateful. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter or at BarryKatz.com. And today, part two of two with Dan Cortez. When I think about Dan, I think about two things, underdog and longevity. When this guy was (laughs) an intern or some kind of position at MTV where he wasn't even in the business but he had a dream and he wanted to do something special. And even though nobody wanted him, nobody was interested in him auditioning. When somebody didn't show up at the end of the auditions, he was ready. In his mind, he was prepared. He had trained for this his whole life. In his mind and in the embodiment of his spirit towards wanting to be in the business. And sure enough, His audition garnered him the hosting gig on MTV Sports, and the rest is history. Truly incredible story. 
longevity because he got that gig three decades ago. Parlated into an Emmy Award, then into commercials, campaigns that were over a hundred different spots for major companies like Burger King, Taco Bell, then parlayed that into working in movies with the greatest film producers in the world like Joel Silver, and parlayed that into working and co-starring with Academy Award-winning actors like George C. Scott and Jack Lemmon, and then parlaying that into scripted television on must-see TV on NBC, working with people like Kirstie Alley, Jerry Seinfeld, Brooke Shields, Luke Perry, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus on an episode of Seinfeld where he created the iconic tagline, Step Off. And then parlayed that into working with one of the greatest reality television producers of our generation, Mark Burnett. The guy just keeps going and going and going. It's incredible. From a guy that nobody knew, nobody wanted, who wasn't even in the business to somebody who's been working in it for close to 30 years. Incredible. So if you ever wonder what you have to do to get to the next level, to push the rock up the hill, to get to the promised land, if you can figure out how to do the things as an underdog, and how to keep going in the longevity department. I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of career that Dan Cortez has had. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Harry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. So I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about something that to me is one of the greatest success stories of somebody fighting through minimum wage jobs and just <laughs> doing everything they can, yeah. getting coffee, being a PA, getting alcohol for people, yeah. doing anything they can to get an affiliation with a certain group of people yeah. until the opportunity finally comes. So I think it's important, even though you told the story in your book, um, I think it's really important for the audience that listen to this show to hear about, take us back your first entrance into the MTV world how you worked your way through these minimum wage yeah. shitty jobs and how you created relationships to one day yeah. on the last 
possible moment you got your opportunity and you seized it and it changed your life forever. The um, the way to go way back, the way I, first time I became somewhat associated with MTV, I was a senior at the University of North Carolina. I was in a professor's office arguing about a, a grade. And I even said in the book, I could even when I took the class, I couldn't remember the professor's name. I used to call him Richard Dreyfus because I felt he looked like Richard Dreyfus. Um, but he gets a call in the middle of that that meeting and hangs up the phone and says, I'm not changing your grade, but Janet Jackson is in concert here tomorrow night, which was a Saturday night. He said, MTV is coming down to shoot something live. And they had just called him and said they needed four runners. They needed gophers to just go. You're going to get 40 bucks and you can put it on your resume. Okay, great. What does a runner do for our audience? Well, uh, it's different what I ended up doing. But it's like like you said, getting water, getting food. Okay, we, anything they need you to do, you're basic. That's you're a gopher. You go for whatever they need you to go for and get. Um, so it's like the lowest of low. Anything. Get that guy to move over there. Get whatever. So the night of the concert, uh, this guy Robert Laforty, who was a producer from MTV in New York. We're shooting it live. He decides to take all six foot, 170 pounds of me, maybe dripping wet. And he made me the talent was downtown Julie Brown. And he's like, you're going to be her bodyguard. And I remember thinking, like, like, who am I going to keep away? Like, if there's people or even big guys, I'm not keeping anybody away. So um, I was her bodyguard. So every time there was live TV, I would always say I even said it in the book. I would find people to seek people out that I thought were getting a little close just so I could get in the frame and try and push people back. Luckily, I was doing my job. Long story short, when that night was over, um, they were leaving to go back uh, to New York and I got a card from Robert LaFord. He said, if you're ever in New York, MTV, give me a call. And I said, okay, well, I'm, when I graduate, three months from now, I'm gonna be in LA and okay, yeah, call me. So graduated and packed up my stuff like the Beverly Hillbillies and moved to to LA and I didn't know anybody, didn't have a job, didn't have a place to live and had just barely a thousand dollars in my, to my name. Started working the door at a bar called Mom Saloon, which was now it's Katsuya in Brentwood, but it was basically a UCLA bar. And I thought I got a job bartending because it would get crowded. I thought, great, I'm going to make money. Uh, they hired me to work the door. I was making three seventy-five an hour, but for every fake ID you'd find, they would give you $20 cash at the end of the night. So I started taking real IDs just to get money to live and eat and would constantly call daily New York. Hey, and I was just leaving messages. Nobody had cell phones. It was like, this is Dan Cortez again. I'm just, I'm in LA. If you guys are doing anything out here. And I said, I got to the point where I never heard back from anybody. And I think they got tired of just me knocking at their door. Um, and then I came home from work one day and had a message on my machine from Ted Demi who was the producer of Yo! MTV Raps. The late Ted Demi, who actually directed the, and executive produced the first episode that I ever... Oh, really? ...executive produced a television a show called Action that was also Doug Herzog was the yeah. president of Fox at the time. Yeah. And again, Jay Moore, Ileana Douglas, the late Buddy Hackett. Yeah. Oh, Buddy Hackett. Um, so I had a call from Ted because he was the executive producer of Yo! MTV Raps and said, I got your name. We're coming to L.A. We need a P.A. You know, it was whatever. I think I made $300 for the week or a couple hundred bucks for the week. Um, and so I started working every time Yo would come because MTV didn't have an office in L.A. at the time. 
So anytime they'd come to the West Coast, I would sort of be the go-to production assistant that they would hire. Uh, they then, a few months after that, opened up a West Coast office, which was maybe eight to ten people. It was small. Um, and it was in Burbank. And I was one of the two office PAs they hired out there. Um, and again, that was great for me because now I'm making $300 a week no matter what. I was getting paid and I was happy. Um, and then I found out probably a year after that, it was in September, that I was being uh, let go at the first of the year because of, they said, cutbacks. So I was one of two people that were going to, they were going to let go. Um, so that was in September and October. I handed in a treatment for a show called MTV Sport, MTV Sport This, which was had all these extreme sports that I wanted to cover that I had never seen before growing up on the East Coast. You created the treatment. Yeah. You registered it with the Writers Guild. No, I was 22. I had no, I didn't even know to do that. So you didn't protect yourself. I gave it to Paul Cockerell, who was running the West Coast office at the time. He loved the idea. He said, let me send it. To New York, sent it to Joel Gallon. And Joel Gallon was uh, working extensively at MTV now. As you probably know, he produces all of the Comedy Central roasts yeah. and many, many live award shows. Yeah. Events. Um, and then, you know, I was told there was, you got to love the word, there was heat around it for uh, like a week. And then I never, never heard anything else about it. So I figured it just went away. Um, and then in November, there was a, a woman who was in charge of finding talent for the West Coast. So I said, hey, comes by my little cubicle, said, you're really into sports. Who do you think would be good to host this new sports show we're doing? So I said, what's that? What's your show? And she explained it to me. I said, that's my idea, which she sort of, you know, laughed at and said, nobody's going to believe a PA had the idea for this. And plus, there was plenty of these ideas in New York. That's where the New York. This is where the idea came from, was New York. So when you found out about the show, did you reach out to the guy you sent the treatment to and said, hey, what the? I had asked Paul what was going on, but more so in my mind, I told the woman, I said, I just want to have an opportunity. Can I at least try out for it? Because the treatment I had myself as producer and host of it, I wanted to host it. And she said, no. And what happened at that moment, I said, why not? And she said, she told me I was too ethnic to be on television. Okay, so when you told the guy, look, you're doing this show, here's my treatment I sent to you, what's going on? He he then sent it to New York. He, he worked with me in the West Coast office. But did he admit that that's the show that they developed? He said it was opinion? similar to my idea. But he didn't say it was inspired by your idea? No. You know MTV back in the day. Yes, I do. <laughs> Um, so she told me I was too ethnic to be on television where I, I grew up in Pittsburgh and my dad, like I said, was an Italian immigrant. So I always thought ethnic is like, Hey, Bizan, what are you doing? Okay. So there's nothing wrong in my mind with being ethnic. So I asked her to explain, what do you mean? I'm too ethnic to be on television. And she told me nobody wants to watch a white guy trying to be a black guy on television. That's why I'm not going to let you try out. So I, I, at that time, it really didn't. It was hard for me to fathom exactly what she was talking about because I was like, I don't even get what she means. I'm just, this is how I act. I'm just this type of person. So long story short, they had 15 finalists uh, to host the show. Do you remember any of them? I don't. They were all like surfer dudes. And I know they had professional surfers, volleyball players, I think a couple skateboarders. But they were guys I didn't, they all had name cachet. I didn't. But they were known in that extreme world. So, Sound familiar? 
Pardon me? Sound familiar? George C. <laughs> Scott story? Yeah. And um, so I was I was actually in the studio that day logging the tapes and in the control room. And one guy was late to show up. So you're there working, yeah, watching people test for the show that you created. Yes. And nobody's given you a chance. No. To even do a five minute thing. No. And you're getting paid presumably around 200 to 300 dollars a week. Yeah. To do shit work in MTV. And you're watching these guys try to take your job away from you that you created. Exactly. <laughs> Were you seething inside? Uh, I was frustrated. I was, you know, I, I don't know if I was seething. It was just one of those, I was, I was the low man on the totem pole. So it was like, in my mind, what more can I say? What can I say? These guys are here. What am I going to do that? They're going to go. Okay. Because I also thought if I said too much, they'd be like, you know what? Forget the first of you. You're fired now. Like just leave. So, uh, yeah, they had their 15 finalists and one guy was late. And Paul, the guy I gave the initial treatment to, said, I don't want to have any downtime. So, Dan, you said you could do this. Go, go out there. Go ahead. Now, did you ever ask him afterwards if in his mind when he got to work that day, he's thinking, listen, I'm going to figure out a way to sneak Dan in here, but I don't want to tell him in case it doesn't happen. Yes. He had that on his mind. Yeah. Cool. And um, so I went out onto the stage and it was. But you weren't prepared. No. No. And I, did, I ran to the stage from the control room to the stage. Was it teleprompter? No. So when I got out there, there was three cameras set up. And the woman who said she refused to let me audition was asking guys questions on camera. So she was off camera. They'd respond to her questions. So when I got out there, I knew all three cameramen. I knew the whole crew. So I get out there and you get, all right, then, you know, guys joking. And so I said, okay, I didn't even think they were filming. I wasn't really quite sure, but I was like, I don't care. I'm going to go for it. She refused to ask me any questions. So I had a lot, you said no acting class, but in college I had taken improv classes, things like that. So I knew the three cameramen, I knew their names. So this was early 90s when the Hollywood Tropicana mud wrestling place was still open in L.A. So I improv a story, just start talking to the cameras about. And then I went with Dave and we got Christian and we went to Hollywood Tropicana and then about mud wrestling. Maybe two minutes. Over the speaker. Damn, the guy's here. Get off stage. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. You know, and I get off stage, go back into the booth. How do uh, you feel? How did I feel? Oh, I was jazzed. I didn't. I honestly didn't believe that they recorded it, but it was fun. I was out there, I was in front of the cameras, I was doing my thing, people seemed to really enjoy it. Um, so we finished that day, I, I tell people, I said, the irony of it all is, as the PA, I was in charge of taking the tape, the reel, and overnighting it to New York, not knowing if I was on it or not. That was on a Monday, Tuesday morning, back in my cubicle, I get a call from Patrick Burns in New York, says, this is Patrick Burns, really like what you did on the audition tape. Um, and starts talking. I thought it was my friend who was a PA in New York at the time, Ed Capuana. So I had a few choice words for him. Like, this isn't even funny. I'm being fired in a month and a half. And you're, and Patrick's very, very steady, very much like you, where he's like, no, this is reassuring. It's Patrick Burns. 
loved what you did. You were different from everybody else. And I want to offer you the job. Do you want to be the host of MTV Sports? So couldn't even tell you what my response to him was. And I even wrote that in the book. I'm sure that's probably what it sounded like. Uh, that was on a Tuesday. Wednesday, they faxed me a contract. I had no attorneys. Again, I was living, I had a futon and a hot plate were the two big things in my life. So you never got somebody to look over the contract. I handed it around the office to people that were, how does this look to you? Does that look good? Barry, does that look good? What are you guys? Cool. That looks good. I mean, I don't see anything. And so I was trying to figure out how I could have somebody look at the contract. I get a call Thursday morning the following day from business affairs in New York saying, um, you don't sign the contract today. They're hiring somebody else. So signed it, sent it back. Friday, I was on a plane. Saturday, shot the pilot in New River Gorge uh, in West Virginia, New River Gorge Bridge. People were based jumping. Um, so, but the, the irony of all that was, I always say, you know, people see you on television, people you grew up with, they're like, oh, you have a series on television. You're a multimillionaire. You have so much money. You're so successful. I was making $300 a week as a production assistant. And that contract was for on-air talent. I was making $400 per show. So and four or five shows a week. And No, we did 20 shows for the year. So you did 20 shows for the, for the year. year. We were only on once a week. So you made $8,000 a year. Yes. So probably so the cameraman made more than you on a yes, much. So I was making 400 to show. We were only doing 20 shows. So probably about three or four shows into it. I told Patrick because I lived in Los Angeles. The show was produced out of New York. So I was I really had nothing to do with the day to day of the show. So um, with the exception of they would just say, call us if you have an idea for something you want to do. I want to run with the Bulls in Pamplona, Spain. All right, let's go do that. So it was great because it was basically the crew was just felt like a group of guys that we were just trying to shoot some cool stuff that we like. But I told Patrick, I said, look, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to take a job bartending because I'm actually making less now as an on-air talent than I was as a PA. So I really don't know what I can do or where I can find a job that a guy will let me leave to go and shoot a show for a couple of days and then come back. So is there anything you can do to help me out? And he got back to me the next day and said, you know, there's, we have no money to give you a raise. He said, but we are budgeted for an extra PA that we don't have. So he then said, I'm going to hire you as the West Coast PA of MTV Sports and personal assistant for Dan Cortez, the host. So then I basically was my own personal assistant and the West Coast PA of the show that I hosted and sent in the treatment for to create just so I can make the extra $300 a week. So I would location scout, book all my own airfare, travel to and from. So it was, but this is what's so amazing. Yeah. Think about what you just said for audience. Think about this. So he's making $8,000 a year before taxes, before taxes. <laughs> okay. As the host of a show that's in 72 countries. Yeah. Okay. His boss gives him a job as a PA for $300 a week, okay, in Los Angeles. The lowest job on the totem pole. <laughs> and that job is paying him 15000 a year. Yeah. So it's almost double the amount of money he's getting paid yeah. as a PA as he is a host. Yeah. So 
when you went, when you, I imagine you hired a manager or an agent or somebody to help you. And because you won MTV's first Emmy Award, after you win an Emmy Award, that almost simultaneously screams renegotiation. Right. Uh, we never did. And here's the reason why. Uh, we were halfway through the first season and I was shooting a show in Hawaii for MTV. And my manager had called me, Ray McKigney at the time, and said, are you sitting down? And told me, we got an offer from Burger King. They want to do a commercial campaign based around you the same way you shoot the show, all improv. They're going to hire Patrick to direct them so you feel safe and you shoot all these. And here's what they're offering. It was more money than I ever thought I'd make. So um, I said, yeah, when I get back, let's talk. of course I want to do it. Of course. So we brought that to MTV and said, you know, just want to let you guys know Dan's about to sign this deal. And they got back to us and said, no, you can't do it. We basically, we own you. We can tell you what you can and you can't do. So at that point, I had a friend, it's one of these stories, a friend who had a friend who was an attorney that loved MTV sports and wanted to meet me. So he said if I would bring him an MTV sports shirt or hat, he'd meet me for a beer and he'd look at my contract. So I meet him, give him the stuff. A couple of days later, he gets back to me, says, you want to meet again? I have some information for you. Let's meet again. And I always say, I always thought the guy just wanted to get out of his house and meet and have beers. But he said, uh, you know, there's good news and bad news. He said, the... Um, the good news is, uh, I can't remember how you put it, but you're never going to change that contract. That's the bad news. That's the bad. You're never going to make more than $400 a show. And I said, well, then what's the good news? He said, the good news is there's four paragraphs in there that are illegal under New York state law. So he said, here's the thing. Go and make your money doing everything else and don't ever change that contract. Because if you change it, they can change those contract or those paragraphs to basically read the same, but be legal. He said, and then they will own you. He said, so leave that contract as it is. Don't ever change it. Go act, go do commercials, go do whatever else you want to do. And they can't hinder you from so doing So you it. go back to them and say, I can do anything I want to do. And did they disagree or did they? No, they, we went back and said, I, I'm going to do the commercials. And their retort to that was then once I started doing the commercials, they, the ad agency, uh, who I can't recall off the hand right now, started telling me that MTV started charging Burger King more for ad spots. Uh, so yeah, it was a whole game. And I said, you know, to me, it was a great learning experience for the, not the creative side of it, but the business side of it, how it all, things that go down behind closed doors. So um, yeah, I never changed that contract and, and went on and just, so they couldn't hinder me from doing any acting gigs or, you know, say they were first position over anything. Um, and I did the show for six years just cause I loved doing it. It was a lot of fun. And, um, but yeah, that was, that whole thing took place from that September to when the first show aired was in January of the following year. And by our third show, we were, that's on in 72 countries and their top show worldwide making $400 a, a week. <laughs> I'm sorry. An episode. So crazy. Yeah. Take us way, way back to where you grew up, what the economic dynamic was of your town, your mom and dad, yeah. and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? The, um, uh, as I said earlier, my dad was an Italian immigrant, my mother, and he was a, a teacher growing up. But then by the time I got to high school, he became my high school principal. 
Uh, my mother was a seamstress, and she also taught at a home for disabled or at a school for disabled children. Um, and I was the youngest of four. I had two older brothers and an older sister. And um, I wasn't really planned. I came sort of five years after. My parents even told me they never thought they'd have more than three kids, but they ended up with four. And um, but I, I grew up in a small town about 20 minutes west of downtown Pittsburgh in the 70s. I was born late 60s. So the steel mills were still very alive and very intact when I was a young boy growing up there. And there was a whole seven mile stretch of steel mills on the Ohio River that was just smokestack after smokestack. And they you would just see them dump things into the whatever the waste was from in the mill. They would just dump it right into the Ohio River and it would just go down the river and um but the people were very uh, genuine, real people. I, I even say in the book, I don't consider them salt of the earth or more hot pepper of the earth, because if you have just uh, uh, just enough of them, it seasons your your meal right. But you have a little bit too much of them, they'll, they'll burn your ass. So um, but good, genuine, real people, whether they like you and if they like you, they tell you they like you. If they don't like you, they tell you they don't like you. It's, um, you know, none of the game of, oh, you're great, great. As soon as you leave. Oh, my God, I can't stand the guy. Um, so I was blessed to have that upbringing, but, um, and by the age of 12 started working. Um, uh, I talk about it in the book where I saw this boom box I wanted to have. She pointed out this commercial to my father and said, do you like that? Yeah. Do you like that? I want that. He goes, okay, get a job. So at 12, I started shining shoes at a golf club, uh, that was about three miles away from my house. I'd ride my bike there and worked for tips and went from there from shining shoes to caddying to valet parking cars. I worked in a, a steel mill for two summers uh, while I was in college. Um, and that really, I worked a graveyard shift at the, this mill. And it was very, um, that was a great learning experience for me. Just because you see how hard these guys would work and things they would do and uh, to, to benefit their family. But you know, they're working from midnight to eight o'clock in the morning, go home and go to sleep and wake up, eat and come back to the mill. Um, and so that was a great experience for me to to, um, to sort of lay a foundation for me as well, to creating the person I am to any job I would get after that. I'm just appreciative of in this industry. I'm just, um, you know, whether it's getting it on your own merit or getting it because you're lucky or uh, I've never assumed anything and always been appreciative for everything. So, um, and you know, my parents were very, my dad told me the first day of high school, love my dad to death. He's a great guy. But as he's walking out, to go drive to high school for the first day. My, my first day of high school, he goes, Oh, one last thing. He goes, we don't have any problems at school. We don't have any problems at home. Capiche? I said, yes, sir. No problem. So I had friends, that when I started doing MTV, they're like, oh, you're so crazy. I'm sure you were like, were you wild in high school? I said, no, I was on a roll, never had detention. Never really why I said I didn't, I didn't want any problems at home. I was, you know, listen to my dad. And also I was, I think lucky enough having being the youngest of four, I knew that if I acted out and, you know, my dad couldn't control me in school, he would be disrespected by the other parents going, okay, he can't even control his own kid. Now he's telling my kid he needs to do this. So I realized that luckily enough at a young age that uh, if I stayed in line, it would make his job easier too. And the first inspiration to getting into the business? First inspiration was fifth grade. Fifth grade, I, we had a, a play where it was a, like a mashup of Alice in Wonderland and then the T-1000 
teacher added all these other characters just so other kids could be in the play. And I was, uh, I was not the white rabbit. I was not the mad hatter. I was the brown rabbit, which the reason I was told I got the, uh, the part was my teacher told me that she saw me wearing a brown vest that my mother actually made, um, at a Christmas event. So she said, we're going to make you the brown rabbit and you have a, this one line that you're going to say, and I wanted to have a bigger part. And she said, no, because we have kids that are actually talented that can do this stuff. So my line was basically to walk out. I had a scene where I walked out with teacups with water in them. And I gave, uh, you know, a cup of tea to Alice and she took it, said your tea, take it. And they drink it. And then I was supposed to walk off the stage. So I, I remember when I walked out, come out. I, I was actually late. They had to yell at me to say, get out on stage. And I got out on stage and here's your tea. They drank the tea. And rather than, as I walked off the stage, I, I took one of the teacups myself and drank it and said, now that's good eating. And I hadn't planned it. I just did it. And I don't know why even to this day. And as I was walking off the stage, Miss Wilson was our teacher and she was very, uh, a very stern woman and she was standing right off stage just staring a hole through me and i knew i even say it in the book i knew i was back when they would paddle you i knew i was getting the paddle but as i was walking off stage something crazy happened the whole place all the parents everybody's watching it erupted and everybody laughed and it got a huge laugh so as i walked off the stage got a big laugh and she ended up just patting me on the butt as i walked by and never said anything else about it and at that moment, I said, you know, I, I realized that this was something I enjoyed that sensation of being in front of people and and getting that response. And uh, but again, it's walking that fine line in between getting the paddle and getting a laugh, because if you're not going to get one or the other, you know, what's the point of doing it if you're just going to walk right down the line and do something van vanilla and plain? So it comes full circle because yeah. you've changed lines from then on and that's been something that you've done that's been successful so. yeah yeah very true but i never thought of that it's very true though six degrees of separation all right six degrees of separation i'm going to mention some names oh boy okay or some things and just and then me. i have to find the six degrees get it, get what, it just tell me what comes to mind okay. maybe it could be a few words a sentence a tiny little story okay whatever it might be all right kirsty alley crazy <laughs> and i tell her that to her face too she's crazy i love her to death She's crazy. <laughs> Luke Perry. Good guy. It's a good guy. Did a film with Luke for TNT or TBS and uh, knew him for years prior to that. And but it was the first time we ever worked together and um, genuine good guy. Good dad. The power of positive summit. Oh, wow. Enlightening. Um, John Gordon, who's a best-selling author, has, I think he's written 18, 19 books about, and a speaker speaks on uh, to professional teams about team building and positivity. Had after reading my book, asked me to uh, be a part of his Power of Positive Summit this year, uh, which is he gathers inspirational speakers and um, has them talk about positivity and how being positive has affected their life. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be asked this year to be a part of that. It was a great experience. 
Billy Idol. Oh, Billy fucking Idol. MTV. That's one of my favorite uh, chapters in the book. I was a that I was a PA. That's when I was a PA at MTV, and I was in charge of getting Billy Idol's dressing room prepared for Billy. I, I was told I want Billy Idol to be Billy fucking Idol when he comes on stage, and it was Oliver Stone, the the Doors movie, and it was the premiere of the Doors movie, and MTV was shooting a live event from the whiskey. Uh, a whiskey a go go on Sunset Strip, and Billy Idol was singing Doris music, and uh, it was a live event, and that was just. And I write about it, as I said, in the book. But the place is going crazy, and I kept hearing on my walkie, "We're live, we're live. Where is Billy? Where?" Dun, 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 and that just that riff kept playing over and over and over. And I'm like, he's on his way down. He was still in his dressing room. There's people in his dressing room. I could hear them partying in there. Dun, 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 dun. Finally, boom, door flies open. All these people come out. Billy's on his way. Door closes. Billy doesn't go out. Dun, 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 dun. The place was going nuts. He finally comes out, smirks at me, runs down the steps, grabs my come on, come on, come on, come on, and me, babe. What is he doing? You hear everything over that? I had nothing else to do the rest of the show until he was done because I was in charge of watching his dressing room. Went down, sat about four steps away and watched Billy Idol from here to there perform Doors music and was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. He's a rock star. Seeing him leave as that chapter ends, I had to run back upstairs. I was drinking the champagne that he didn't want and he comes running off stage, Some gets a girl from somewhere, runs up, Grabs a champagne out of my hand, runs down the back steps, goes to out the back door of the whiskey. Somebody's like, anybody have eyes on Billy? I run down, look, and he's peeling tire out of the park, back parking lot of the whiskey on his Harley with the girl on the back holding a bottle of champagne. And he drives off down Sunset Boulevard. Now, he's a rock star, man. And he never met the girl before. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, I'm sure. Something you have something in common with, other than acting with them, Brooke Shields. Something I have in common with Brooke, other than acting. Prancing around in your underwear. Prance? Well, yeah. Well, she did. I mean, Calvin Klein, come on. She was getting, well, I got paid for it, I guess, on Veronica's Closet. I had a deal with Veronica's Closet. Because, you know, the whole concept of that show with Kirsty was she owned like a Victoria's Secret company. And the people that created that show were Marta Kaufman and David Crane, who created Friends. So when we did that show, it was on the heels of Friends' crazy success, and that was still on. So then they created Veronica's Closet, and then we're part of, you know, must-see TV, Thursday night, Friends, then Seinfeld. Then How Veronica's many years Closet. were you on? Three seasons we were on. It's very rare for a show to be canceled after three seasons. Especially with Kirstie Alley as your star and Marta Kaufman and David Crane. Because back then it was just getting to that 100 episode yeah. mark. Now it doesn't matter. But back then the, it mattered. And, and you only need one more year. Trust me. We had probably the second episode into it. We were so full of ourselves. And it was huge for Kirstie because coming off a of cheer, she had done one or two. She did the Look Who's Talking movies. But this was her big return to television and our pilot uh, was the highest rated pilot since Roseanne. So everybody immediately was like, start cashing those syndication checks now. Like we're going to, we've got the people that created friends. We got Kirsty and we've, 
And um, by the third season, halfway through the third season, I remember Daryl Chill Mitchell and Wally Langham. Wally was on uh, uh, NCIS and then Chill's on NCIS New Orleans. And it's just like we would say, just don't. Don't screw this up for us. This is like the great because sitcoms are great gigs. I mean, it's you don't have the hours of one hour or feature film hours. You know, we were working three and a half days a week for three weeks. And then, you know, you have the fourth week off 22 weeks a year. It's like this is amazing. And we would say, Kirsty, please don't don't screw this up for us. And, you know, and she'll even say she admits it now. It's like, you know, I'm, maybe I should have done things a little bit differently. What do you think she did to you, you? Are you trying to say that if she had been a model citizen, the show would have gone the four seasons? Yeah. Really? Yeah. There was, but here's what you have to understand too. There was really two very, very talented women that were at the head of that show. Marta Kaufman and Kirstie Alley. And I loved them both to death. But they're both very talented and very um, headstrong. Headstrong. So they're either going to get along and it's going to be great, or they may not get along and, you know, things could go awry. So, um, you know, it just, we got to the point where then, you know, sometimes she'd show up late or then, you know, we ended up having a, a cast meeting with Kirsty just saying, you know, we all have a call at 8 a.m. You know, you're showing up at noon. So we did that in front of her. We did. We had a the cast. We sat with her. Oh, you had an intervention. Yeah. And it was um, and I was the one that was chosen of all people. Kathy and Jimmy should have been doing that. How did she handle so, it? Well, we just said she's like, I know, I know. And that's all be better. But and they, I even said, like, if you're going to show up at 12, like if you want to show solidarity or whatever, at least call us or have one of your assistants call us and say, I'm showing up at 12. So we don't sit around for four hours or rehearse with your stand in, you know, where we're going to have to do it again with you anyway. So I think off of that initial success of that show, when the ratings were great and hey, like I said, with the highest rated pilot since Roseanne, I think, you know, she thought it was on autopilot and, um, you know, and I think it, and it's not all her fault. I think uh, the cast, we all sort of were like, yeah, this is, you know, we're going to be here for five, six, seven years. So, uh, you know, and you eventually have people that are in charge of like, uh, life's too short. So, got it. It was a lot of fun to do that show, though. Bob Saget. <laughs> I love Bob Saget. One of the funniest human beings uh, you will ever meet. I did a, I knew Bob through Jonathan Silverman. Uh, I met him through Johnny and then uh, was fortunate enough to do a show that he had called Surviving Suburbia that was on the CW um, for, I think we had six or seven episodes that we did of it. And uh, Bob, as funny as he is and as blue as his comedy can get, is one of the nicest guys and loyal guys that uh, you could meet. I saw him a few years back, uh, probably five, six years ago, out to dinner and just said hi to him from a couple tables away and went over and said hello. And I got back to my table and I wasn't even at my table five minutes. And the waiter brought over this very delicious looking brownie with white 
writing on top of it that said, I miss you already. And I looked over at Bob and he blew me a kiss. And he was on a date at the time, too. It was before he got married. And it was just like, you know, I, I just adore him. He's hilarious. He's one of the funniest people you ever meet. Sandra Bullock. Wow. When I did, uh, I did Demolition Man with her and we did a, and it was right sort of when she was starting to take off. She wasn't Sandra Bullock at the time. And um, we also did a MTV live event to promote Demolition Man where we were in Louisville, Kentucky. And the whole event was we're going to implode a building that MTV bought this building that needed imploded and going to implode this building and it's going to be this live event for Demolition Man. So we're going to demolish this building in Louisville, Kentucky. And it's Dan on stage with Sandra and, and Sly and Wesley Snipes. And we're going to do this. Do the, Sly does the fake plunger. And what nobody in production realized was the wind from the building was blowing toward us. We were quite a bit away from it. But when this giant, I think it was like an eight or nine story brick building implodes and collapses, all that debris and everything starts... So Sandra runs off, they're all like, we're out of here. And in my ear, I'm hearing on my IFB saying, we've got two and a half minutes. We've got two and a half minutes. You got to just keep talking, keeps it. And you couldn't even see me because it's just all the smoke and everything flying. So I was trying to get up to the camera just to keep talking. But um, adorable, sweet woman, extremely talented um, and genuine, genuine person. Bill Hader. Never met him in person. Uh, I think he's hilarious. His uh, Stefan bit where he, uh, that um, Mulaney, what's his first name? John. John Mulaney. Thank you. The stand-up rope for him where the recurring joke was uh, Dan, Dan Cortez, MTV's Dan Cortez. I was about to go out to dinner with a friend, was upstairs showering, came back downstairs, was about to leave here in Malibu and picked up my phone and I had like 300 Twitter notifications. I don't have that many people follow me. Like, what is this? And I look and it was all the people were referencing from the East coast, uh, that SNL bit that, uh, they brought up. So, um, Hey, you'll take any publicity you can get these days. So that worked for me. The bandana. Wow. The bandana. It's, and I, again, write about this in the book. A lot of people say that was your thing. That was, you wore that bandana because, you know, that was that was your your go to look. That was your. No, I, I initially started wearing it because I hated the lines on my forehead. So it was a total vanity thing. But also it was the 90s. So, you know, grunge era. That was it was an easy way to do it. So I would wear that or I'd wear backball, backwards baseball caps to to uh, to cover that all up. But then it sort of became the the go-to thing for me. Uh, wait. I always have one with me. Now, although now with a one and a half year old, this is more of a burp cloth now. So I just <laughs> use it to clean up his face. At the height of everything, certain women have lots of shoes. Yes. Certain people have lots of baseball caps. Yeah. How many bandanas did you own? Jeez. Oh, uh, I probably never had more than say 20. I had my go-to ones that were broken in and old that I liked. I really never liked like real stiff ones. They had to be broken in and old. Mel Gibson. Uh, Mel. I Mel is a unique. He's an intense guy. Um, when I, I did an episode of MTV Sports with Mel, where he, when he was filming Braveheart, 
And, uh, and that's in the book. But another story about Mel is uh, our kids went to the same preschool in, here in Malibu. And Which one was it? It was uh, found, or Garden of Garden Childhood. Of Childhood. Yeah, yeah, my son went there. With Miss, Miss Terry? Yes. And uh, there was, well, you may have been there. There was a, uh, well, wait, your son was probably a little younger than mine. Huge backyard. Huge backyard. And they had a parent's dinner where they were still trying to raise yep, money. Yeah, the dinner inside of, yeah. in the house. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I went there, you know, and basically for my with my son. And Mel was there. And I hadn't seen Mel probably, you know, at that point, it was probably about 10 years since I did the Braveheart thing with him. So I was like, I had long hair back then, not sure if he'd even remember me, whatever. But he was by the table where all the food was and just eating by himself. So I just said, ah, the hell with him. Who knows? I'm just going to go up and say hi. And he's eating aggressively. And I just went up and said, Mel, Dan Cortez, he goes, I know you. What happened to the hair? And I said, well, I, I cut it off probably about five, six years ago. But I said, you know, my son goes here. My son goes here. And having small talk, but he's very intense. And then he, he's finishing his food. And he just looks and goes, have you tried? Did you try the pasta? And I said, no. And he takes his plate and goes and licks it and then just sets it down and keeps talking to me. And I, it was like slow motion, Barry, because I remember just going. He licked the plate. Licked the sauce off the plate. Said it was delicious. And I looked around and I was like. Did anybody else just see, like, Mel just licked the, the red pasta sauce off of that plate, but like nothing. It was fluid, licked it off there, set it down, kept talking to me. Um, but intense and extremely talented. Braveheart's one of my favorite movies of all time. And to direct that as well as star in it, um, what an achievement. Mark Burnett. Wow. I... I've known Mark for years, uh, again, just from Malibu. And I was out of town working on something. Uh, I can't recall what, but um, he had told a friend of mine at a party that he's like, I need to talk to Dan. I need to talk to Dan. I need to talk to Dan. Um, I need him to host the show that I'm trying to sell. It's called Survivor. And I, uh, once he finally got to my manager at the time, I, was, I can't remember what I was working on, but I was unable to do it. So he now, wanted you to host Survivor. Yeah. Now I laugh. And you were unavailable. Yeah. Now I laugh when I talk to Jeff Probst, who's a good friend of mine, saying, Jeff, you know, how's that $300,000 a week for the last 25 years treating you? I'm sure that's pretty good. Does, does he know he was the second choice? Well, I don't know if he knew. I told him that Mark used to talk to me about He's Jeff's a great guy great guy and he, you would have done great oh yeah it's a lot and you know god bless him it's it's always makes my heart feel good when you see good people uh rewarded the same day and age you'd be anyway yep people always i i always bring that up to people saying for example somebody hey i'm 50 i want to learn how to play the piano but you know by the time i learn how to play the piano you know how old i'll be it's like yeah you'll be the same age you'll be anyway so why not be that age and know how to play the piano? So it's basically, it's never too late to start. So, cause as soon as you stop doing that, then you've quit. Um, so always try new things. It's good for your brain too. Bo Jackson. Uh, huge, uh, very serious. Um, but kind, he had, he was the very first guest I had on MTV sports and, um, 
the, that episode we were waiting for Bo, we were doubling up. He was shooting something else for MTV at the time. And they said, Hey, you can have Bo for 20 minutes. And, uh, so we're waiting for Bo and it was at the height of his, you know, success. Bo knows the Nike campaign, Bo knows. And I'm trying to keep the crew entertained while we're waiting for Bo. And I'm like, Bo don't know Dan. Where's Bo Jackson? He don't know. And everybody's silent. And I look in the stage, dark stage, turn around where everybody's looking and you see Bo Jackson backlit because he had just entered the stage, just standing there. And, um, geez, my foot was so far in my mouth. So that was, he's a serious guy to begin with. So then that became, he walked from the chair or from the door to the couch in the center of the stage and was like, I'm ready. So Patrick was directing that to Patrick Burns. He's like, okay, action. So I had no time to make real small talk with him, but Patrick told me going into it, look, he's a serious dude. You got to make him smile. We got to have fun. So yeah, I went with, Hey, how's it going? Good looking. And he started laughing at that for some reason. And we were off and running and had a great time and laughs during that interview. And uh, yeah, but good dude, serious guy, but man, Shook my hand and about broke my entire arm when he shook my hand. Betty White. Oh, my God. One of my all-time favorites. Even before I met her, even when I was a young child, just loved Betty White. Uh, on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, everything she's always done has been amazing. And I was fortunate enough a few years ago to do an episode uh, hot in Cleveland, where it was one episode where I got a call from my manager at the time said, hey, Got this episode for you. You're going to play a football player. And I would always say the same thing to my manager. As long as I don't have to take my shirt off. Okay, I'll do it. And he's like, well, first page in the locker room, in a towel. I, I was playing a professional kicker for the Cleveland Browns. And um, and Betty comes in with Valerie Bertinelli. Valerie's interviewing players. And so Betty was uh, along with her in the scene. And then Betty asks in the scene, can I touch your chest? Is it okay if I touch your chest? She touches my chest and does what Betty does and just cracks up the entire audience. But prior to that, during the week, could not have been more professional about that whole thing uh, where she was just like, I just want to make, she wanted to make sure I was okay with, you know, are you okay? Even with the way it's scripted that I'm going to touch your chest and I'm so uh, could not have been more professional about it. And then she said, thanks, sweetie, because I'm going to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, just adore her true professional and wow. I mean, so talented. Awesome. Being told to choose between an actor and a host. Like we said earlier, that was in the nineties. That was the thing. And that was, you know, you had to decide. And it was like, if you're going to be an actor, you need to hang up that you can't go back to hosting. You can't do it. If you want to act, you have to be an actor. So that was difficult for me just because I wanted to do both. I, my whole thing was, why can't I do both? Why, and like, you know, you've been through it where you're like, the way they, that was frowned upon. It's like, you can't, you don't do that. You're one or the other. So um, there was at that time more money uh, for me to make acting and acting was also the direction I wanted to go. So um, when that all really came to to a, a head there was when MTV Sports was just about done. So, um, but yeah, that was difficult. I wish that never would have been that way. Got it. Joel Silver. Oh my God. Joel, Joel screams a lot. Uh, <laughs> he's a great guy. I would always joke with Joel that he would wear his pajamas to, to set because Joel always has like that 
it's not a uniform because there's different fabric, but it's always they look like satin pajamas he's wearing all the time. Always these baggy, cool outfits. Um, but that when I did Demolition Man that Joel produced, that was my first experience into big budget, you know, big time movies. And um, Marco Brambia was directing that and he was a music video director and uh the scene i was in i'm literally on camera for two seconds and i'm you know a lounge singer to taco bell and that scene we shot took four days to shoot and i remember thinking because i believe the budget was at that time was like 80 or 90 million dollars and i remember thinking all right well because after like halfway through the second day joe was like don't like any of this part of the set so let's redo that whole thing. And then we started reshooting the scene again. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's why it's $90 million budget. But extremely talented. Look, he's talk about persevering over decades, putting out blockbusters. Pauly Shore. The Weasel. I was he, totally Pauly. Totally Pauly. And he was one of my, uh, the very first shows I was a production assistant on was totally Pauly. I used to. And even to this day, if I see Paulie out in public, he the first person that he can find, he will go and say, this guy used to get my my water for me. He used to get me coffee. He used to get me donuts, anything that I wanted. Uh, Paulie even would tell me that I stole his bit and his bit. I said, what do I say? What do you mean? You would talk straight to the cameras. That's my thing. That was my thing. And I remember telling Paulie, everybody on MTV talks directly to them, <laughs> talks directly. It wasn't like that was you were doing it first. Like it. No, you stole my thing. But he's a good dude. Talented guy. Sylvester Stallone. The Godfather. Um, Sly, again, a very talented guy uh, in, in so many facets. Um, and really, when we did Demolition Man, we shot an episode of MTV Sports from the set of Demolition Man 2 and then he brought me into the whole Planet Hollywood family in the mid to late 90s. And um, just really, I mean, I was always a fan of his growing up, but just um, was honored and flattered that, you know, he considered me a friend. And just really, I mean, you look at his career and just see a lot of times people don't realize how talented certain people are while they're doing things. It takes you need to see the career evolve maybe a little bit more, but just from writing and, and directing and act and putting together brands, of, you know, Rocky and Rambo and now the untouchables. And it's like, he knows how to build that brand uh, and does it so well. Posing in front of a Hollywood sign in a car that isn't yours. <laughs> that was, I think that was for us magazine. I believe it was for a photo shoot for us magazine. And that was when I was doing route 66. So that was a old, uh, 66 Corvette. And, um, and that was ironically enough, the guys that shot that, those photos were also taking photos while I would change. And I, had never, I was never a model. So I was like, and we, there was nowhere for me to change. It was like, here's the rack of clothes. And it's two guys, one photographer, the other one's a stylist. Just change right here. We're in the middle of nowhere in front of the Hollywoods. Like, nobody's going to see. Just change here. And the guy kept taking photos and not thinking really anything about it. It's just part of the thing they're going to use, whatever. And then a few years after that, maybe less than two years, probably a year and a half after we that piece aired, 
uh, a friend of my manager's raise had said, uh, yeah, so he was a homosexual guy. He said he had seen, I saw a card of Dan in this gay gift shop in San Francisco. And it's like, what are you talking about? So he, he bought two of them and they were the photos from that day that this guy's had taken. And one was me without a shirt. And then another one was me in like jeans without a shirt. And the other one was in one of the wardrobes I had worn, I guess, that the, they had actually taken. But they were in a novelty shop. So then my manager got into it with him. He's like, it's completely illegal. You guys can't do this. His likeness, blah, 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 all that good stuff. So he said, you need to remove all those cards and send them to me. So as an FU to my manager, they sent all the cards back, but had them shredded first. So he got a, a giant box sent to his office of shredded uh, cards. So he's like, I don't know how many they actually shredded, but. Uh, yeah, that was a unique learning experience as well. The cast of Seinfeld. Geniuses. Comedic geniuses. Um, like I alluded to earlier, that and just so about the creative process. Uh, and I include Larry in that too. Um, and just to actually be open to a young kid who was just starting acting and also they were aware of the fact that it was also my first sitcom that I had ever acted in, uh, generous and, uh, so talented, which is, you know, probably why the, the show is still watched just as much today as it was, was back then. Your proudest moment in show business. Proudest moment in show business. I would probably have to say when the very first episode of MTV Sports aired, um, you know, that was not only I'm here moment, but uh, that was proof to myself, I think, and to other people that I can do this, that, uh, you know, I felt I belonged. And then as that show went along, but um, I've had many proud moments and uh, enjoyable moments, but probably that very first one, you know, there's never anything like the first. So, um, but that to me, that meant a, a lot to me because as I said, and it's in the book too, with the woman telling me, you know, nobody's going to want to watch you on television. And then I got that job. And when, you know, years later I asked Patrick, why did you hire me? He said, because you were just being you. So, uh, that was sort of a little bit of retribution for me that, you know, I was doing the right thing. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Biggest disappointment in show business. Wow. I, I think the, uh, you know, I think everything has been uh, a learning experience. Um, maybe that, you know, Veronica's Closet may be able to take it a little more seriously. Uh, just because, and not that that would have affected the outcome of it and not that I didn't take it seriously, but like I said earlier, I think, you know, a lot of us were just took for granted that this is it. Everybody gets that one shot that this is going to be the sitcom that's going to go into syndication and we're all going to, you don't have to worry about money from now. Now we can do stuff we want to do instead of stuff to, to pay the bills. So, um, but I use that to fuel, uh, you know, the way that I would approach jobs after that. I was fortunate enough uh, a few years after that to get a show called Rock Me Baby, where I was 
it was the first time I was number one on the call sheet. I was the lead and I had a, uh, a talk with the entire cast prior second day of rehearsal of shooting uh, the pilot. And I said, look, here's how I like to work. When you come to work, be here on time. Don't show up late. And I think a lot of this had to do with experiences I had before. Be here on time. Second thing is have read the script when you get here in the morning. You've got especially sitcom writers that are working here until two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, rewriting stuff so that it's on your doorstep so that you read it before you get here. Read it. And three, let's have fun. Check your ego at the door. Don't bring in any of this, you know, BS of, oh, my trailer isn't big enough or this. I need to have this at the craft service. Save that stuff. This is a sitcom. Realize how fortunate you are to do what you do. You all want to be actors. I want to be an actor. We're on, we're working actors. That's, that's a rarity. So, and then I use the fact, look, I worked in a steel mill graveyard shift for two, two summers. You could all be working in a steel mill. You don't want to do that. We're fortunate. So act like you're fortunate. Awesome. The balance between work and family and making it work. I, I probably have that skewed a little bit where it's always family first and it's always almost to the point of uh, not working as much as I should uh, just because uh, my family means so much to me. But it is it's a it's a difficult dynamic, but it's also uh you know, fortunate in the entertainment industry where you do have times off, you do have, you know, extended period of time off, whether it's a sitcom or, a, you know, you're shooting a film or what you might be gone for two months, but then you're going to have some time off. So it's not like I'm working a, a daily grind or a nine to five where I'm only seeing my kids for a couple hours before they go to bed. So um, my family uh, will always be most important. And um, then, you know, doing what I love runs a close second last question what advice do you have for the young person growing up in the shadows of the steel mills trying to figure out how they can get out of there and yeah and make their mark in the entertainment business and what they have to do to have the kind of amazing unique multifaceted career that you've had uh trust your gut um i had somebody ask me the other day what would you, if you could go back now and tell 16-year-old Dan something that you think he needs to know, what would you tell him? And I say, I wouldn't tell him anything. There, You need to experience and to learn uh, from those experiences and, and fail. And as long as you're learning from those failures, uh, then it'll benefit you more than the successes. So don't give up if it's something that you want to do and your gut tells you you're meant to do, do it. Um, again, I wrote about it in my book where I said, I told my parents, you know, because when you're a young kid, you think 30 is so old. You said, I, I remember saying, I don't want to wake up and be 30 one day and go, I wonder what would have happened if I had ever gave that a shot. Don't do that. You'd rather wake up and be 30 and go, you know what? I was out there for five years. I was out there for seven years. It didn't work out for whatever reason. Uh, and then if you want to move on after that, then move on. But I say, if it's what you want to do, life's too short. Do what you want to do. Because you don't, I had this discussion with my 16-year-old daughter the other day where we were talking about colleges and 
what do you want to do for a living? She said, I want to make a lot of money. And I said, that's a bad answer. Everybody wants to make money, but you can make a lot of money and be miserable. Do something that makes you happy. Do something that you love to do. Because guess what? If you're good enough at it, you're going to make the money. So, and even if you don't, you're going to be fulfilled in that you're doing something you appreciate doing. So, yeah, follow your gut. Go for it. It's that simple. Dan Cortez, this right. has been amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so, much. so much. I really appreciate so it. This was fun. And you got me out of the house. This I know. It's good. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. It's going to be incredible. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. 
and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.